Well, good afternoon and welcome on behalf of the Center for the Study of Religion and Princeton University. I'm Robert Wuthno, the Center's Director. Uh, let me check the sound with those of you in the back. Are we okay? Getting thumbs up. Okay. The question that brings us together today, what does it mean to be human, is hardly new. Indeed, one might say that the very capacity to ask this question is a distinguishing feature of being human. Throughout time, scholars and religious leaders, philosophers and sages, poets, musicians, have been inspired by the gravity of this question. In our time, science especially compels us to address it anew. Advances in molecular biology and genomics provide breathtaking insights and open new possibilities for medicine, health, reproductive technology, and research. Invariably, these possibilities raise deep ethical, moral, and policy questions that sometimes command attention at the highest levels of national leadership. Universities are not, ultimately, where these policy questions are decided. But universities are a privileged space for inquiry and discussion. It is in that spirit that we have assembled a truly distinguished and academically diverse gathering of scholars to reflect on what it means to be human at the intersection of religion and bioethics. We are very honored to have President Shirley Tillman with us today to introduce our speaker and chair this first session. President Tillman has much more than a passing interest in this topic. In addition to being a gifted teacher, and as we on campus here know already, a very able university president, she is a world-renowned molecular biologist whose many accomplishments include participating in cloning the first mammalian gene, making scientific breakthroughs at the Institute for Cancer Research, and serving as founding director of the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics. President Tillman. Good afternoon. I would like to join Professor Wuthno in welcoming all of you to this important conference. The topic of this conference, as Professor Wuthno has just said, what does it mean to be human, religion, and bioethics, is certainly a timely one. And I speak, as he just said, from the perspective of being a life scientist myself and recognizing that we live in a time when advances in the life sciences, advances that include the potential for human cloning, the potential for both somatic and germline gene therapy, and the potential to use embryonic human stem cells to cure such intractable diseases as juvenile diabetes and cancer, have generated both new dilemmas and reactivated some old debates for both our religious leaders 
and our moral philosophers to help us think through. To my mind, one of the most difficult stumbling blocks to honest and productive debate about bioethics have been rhetorical and methodological divides that have been constructed between scientists on the one hand and religious leaders and ethicists on the other. This conference, by bringing together scientists, ethicists, and religious thinkers, is a highly constructive step toward lowering those barriers in communication. To their great credit, our students are intensely interested in these debates, and this conference will give them an opportunity to hear distinguished scholars and thinkers discuss profound bioethical issues without cant or ideological rigidity. The first speaker this afternoon is Professor James Childress, the Edwin B. Kyle Professor of Religious Studies and Professor of Medical Education at the University of Virginia, where he is also co-director of the Virginia Health Policy Center. He has served on the faculty at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University and has been visiting professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School and here at Princeton. He is the author of numerous numerous articles and books in biomedical ethics, including Principles of Biomedical Ethics, Priorities in Biomedical Ethics, Who Should Decide, Paternalism in Healthcare, and Practical Reasoning in Bioethics. A founding member of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, Dr. Childress is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences, and a fellow of the Hastings Center. I welcome uh, with great interest Professor Childress. Uh, testing, okay, in the back. Uh, thank you very much, uh, President Tillman, uh, Professor Whitnow. It's great to be uh, at this conference and to see a number of collaborators and friends, uh, Harold Shapiro, Peter Singer, uh, Jeff Stout, and many others. And I look forward to the discussion we're going to have over this uh, day and a half. The overarching question for this conference, uh, what does it mean to be human, uh, is ambiguous. Uh, Questions about being human can focus on the agent, the one who acts, uh, the one acted upon, uh, or both. And these questions obviously interact. Uh, They also arise on several different levels in different contexts. The broad question or context for these questions uh, today in this conference uh, is religion and bioethics. And within that broad context, I will consider whether there's a legitimate role for religious convictions about what it means to be human in formulating public policy in a liberal, pluralistic democracy. Now, many of the early contributors to bioethics were theologians uh, who thought about bioethics in theological terms, or philosophers, scientists, and clinicians. Uh, 
who were influenced by religious perspectives, uh, or social scientists who seriously considered religious viewpoints. More secular philosophical approaches then came to dominate the field, uh, but recent years have seen renewed interest and broad interest uh, in bioethics within religious traditions and within religious frameworks of meaning and value. Some major and apparently intractable conflicts in bioethics appear to pit religious against secular perspectives. But as we'll see, particularly in the context of debates about human reproductive cloning and human embryonic stem cell research, the conflicts are often among religious traditions themselves and frequently conflicts even within the same tradition. Religion in bioethics is less controversial than religion in public bioethics. At least the part of public bioethics concerned with the formulation of public policy, uh, the other part being concerned with the shaping of public culture. Uh, public bioethics uh, involves doing bioethics in public, on behalf of the public, with public participation, and with a view toward shaping public policy and public culture. My comments today fall within the general area of applied or practical political philosophy rather than theology. I will offer some reflections on the value, limitations, and constraints of attending to religious perspectives or listening to religious voices in formulating or recommending public policies in our society. At work in this paper, but inadequately developed, as I'm sure Professor Singer will note, uh, is a conception of public reason or reasoning, uh, one that recognizes a legitimate role for religious convictions in the process of formulating public policy, but also limits that role in the content and justification of public policy. So central uh, is a notion of public justification, of giving reasons to each other as citizens in a deliberative democracy. A few other points will... Uh, suggest the direction and limits of my presentation. In addressing these questions of public bioethics, I will draw on my experience uh, on the National Bios Advisory Commission, or NBAC, as I'll refer to it, uh, an 18-member presidentially appointed commission, uh, which first met in October 1996 and which officially ended in October uh, 2001, last month. Uh, this was death by passive euthanasia rather than active euthanasia. Uh, President Bush simply let it, the uh, charter expire uh, without renewing it. Uh, this commission, uh, which was so ably chaired by Harold Shapiro, uh, had the mandate to address the use and management of genetic information and the protection of the rights and welfare of research subjects. But then, as a result of major and controversial scientific developments in cloning and stem cell research, uh, President Clinton asked the Commission to prepare reports and make recommendations in these areas for federal policy. And these two debates about uh, cloning human beings and human embryonic stem cell research provide, I think, interesting and important examples of bioethical public policy and its interaction with public culture and particular religious traditions. Public policy can be defined as whatever governments do or do not do. But public policies that raise basic ethical questions uh, often involve decisions about whether to permit, to regulate, or to prohibit some action or practice, or whether to provide 
federal funds or public funds for some activities or projects. The debate about cloning humans has focused mainly on permissive, regulative, or prohibitive public policies, while the debate about human embryonic stem cell research has focused mainly on whether federal funds should be used for this research. Both types of public policy raise significant and related, but somewhat different ethical questions. Now, when President Clinton asked NBAC to consider the cloning of humans and to prepare a report within 90 days, uh, he commented that any discovery that touches upon human creation is not simply a matter of scientific inquiry, it is a matter of morality and spirituality as well. Shortly thereafter, uh, the Commission set up two days of hearings with particular attention to scientific, ethical, and religious perspectives. We also commissioned a paper on religious views uh, and heard from religious spokespersons in public testimony at many of our meetings. Uh, each meeting had a public testimony period that was open to anyone, uh, including uh, people from religious communities. Then when we later turned to deliberate about human embryonic stem cell research, uh, we were informed that our conclusions, whatever they might be, would be considered inadequately formed and informed uh, unless we did more to solicit religious viewpoints. So we had both internal and external reasons for attending to religious perspectives. And in relation to stem cell research, we devoted a full day of hearings at Georgetown University uh, with invited scholars speaking from within religious traditions, uh, including several who are participating here, uh, Gilbert Mylander, uh, Nancy Duff, who's here today, and so forth. Why religious perspectives? Uh, some were surprised that uh, NBAC solicited religious perspectives along with the customary philosophical perspectives. And if I recall correctly, uh, it was not someone from religious studies, myself, but rather Tom Murray, who first suggested that we ought to attend to religious perspectives along with the philosophical ones. Attention to religious perspectives is not unprecedented, though, uh, in debates about public policies for new technologies. For instance, the President's Commission uh, President's Commission's report, Splicing Life, in 1980, early 1980s, included religious perspectives in its discussion of genetic engineering. In particular, it focused on playing God, which often has a secular as well as uh, specifically religious significance. Uh, and President Clinton invoked that kind of language uh, as well when talking about cloning. And it seems to me often to focus on claims about unwarranted, uh, unwarranted human claims to uh, unlimited power and uh, unlimited accountability or without uh, having accountability. Uh, it's important, though, I think, to ask, uh, despite this kind of precedent, uh, what is the appropriate role for religious convictions in a liberal pluralistic democracy in facing controversial scientific and technological developments? Now, we recognized on NBAC that we could not formulate a public policy or make a recommendation about public policy uh, simply in terms of religious considerations, uh, that our own reasons for any recommendations we came up with and the content, content of those recommendations uh, could not and should not be religious. But in our report on cloning, and we didn't really address this uh, set of reasons for attending to uh, religious perspectives in our report on stem cell research, but in the report on cloning, in two different places, we listed several reasons. And let me just put those up on an overhead uh, for you uh, so you can quickly get a glance of some of the reasons we gave and these are not systematically related in the report, but rather capture some of the things that we felt were important. 
that religious traditions influenced and shaped the moral views of many citizens, and religious teachings over the centuries have provided an important source of ideas and inspiration. There should be respect for diverse moral ideas. All voices should be welcome to the conversation. Often religious ideas can be stated forcefully in terms understandable and persuasive to all persons, irrespective of religious beliefs. We want to determine whether various traditions, religious and otherwise, reach similar conclusions about human reproductive cloning, uh, whether there's a convergence. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, it's important to consider a range of views, including religious ones, in determining the feasibility and cost of different policies, since, after all, uh, the extent of opposition may well determine uh, whether a policy uh, really is feasible and how one assesses it from the standpoint of, of a, an informal cost-benefit analysis. Now, rather than developing those reasons, I want to, uh, you to keep those in mind, uh, and I want to mention a couple of other reasons that did not explicitly appear in our report and in our discussion. And in the process of developing these, I want to challenge, as I've suggested I would, uh, some conceptions of public reasoning that seem to uh, exclude or at least seek to exclude uh, religious convictions uh, from the public policy process. Now, if public reasoning includes imagination uh, and not only a rational deduction from shared uh, secular premises, then uh, even religious stories and theological concepts may enable us to imagine and reimagine in ways that are fruitful for public policy. What does human reproductive cloning mean? What are its potential negative and positive effects? How are we to understand human embryonic stem cell research and its significance? How are we to view the early embryo existing in a Petri dish uh, or cryopreserved embryo? Now, rather than excluding religious views, we should, I think, consider them on their own terms uh, to see what we might learn from them. They might yield insights. And they might do so through enabling us, for example, to see from different perspectives the technology for cloning humans or the extracorporeal embryo as a possible source of stem cells. And this revisioning may be important for public policy, even if in the end policymakers or advisors reject the positions that the religious stories or concepts support or shape, and even if they justify their policy recommendations on independent secular grounds. And such revisioning may occur even when religious positions diverge, uh, as they did in many respects uh, on the morality of cloning humans, uh, but also and especially on the morality of deriving stem cells from embryos left over after in vitro fertilization. As Martha Nussbaum reminds us, a certain kind of imagination, and she focuses especially on literary imagination, uh, in her book, Poetic Justice, The Literary Imagination in Public Life, a certain kind of imagination can be part of public reasoning or public rationality. Uh, and this exercise of imagination may include secular or religious stories or myths, as well as many other things, uh, biblical stories, uh, story of Prometheus, uh, Frankenstein, Brave New World, etc. The biblical story or stories of creation in Genesis uh, may have functioned in such a way for some commissioners uh, even if they were, in Max Weber's words, religiously unmusical. Uh, and even though the religious thinkers we heard from drew on different stories, and even when drawing on the same story, for example, 
uh, the creation or one of the creation stories in uh, Genesis, uh, reached quite different conclusions on the basis of those stories. Now, one of our commissioners uh, in a, an article, uh, as this was discussed in an article in the Washington Post, uh, reported that uh, she had been particularly moved by theologian Gilbert Mylander's discussion of children as a gift. Now, uh, Gilbert Mylander's discussion or description came in the context of a discussion of the biblical story of creation and, in particular, a distinction between uh, within drawing on the Nicene Creed between begetting and making. Now, those are heady religious concepts for public discourse about human cloning. As I remember our conversation, uh, when I called on behalf of NBAC to ask uh, Gil to testify, he asked me whether his theological approach would be appropriate in that context. And I assured him that it would. But then individual commissioners asked for translation of those theological concepts into secular language, uh, with one commissioner wondering whether it was necessary to use religious categories uh, to express principled views, uh, such as the distinction between uh, making babies uh, and begetting them. Well, now, a strictly rationalistic model of public reasoning uh, might neglect and, and perhaps even sharply criticize uh, a role for imagination and reimagination in public policy. Uh, and from such a standpoint, uh, there's usually a demand that religious views, when offered, be restated or translated into some common secular language. Now, I want to say two things here. I don't think it's inappropriate to seek a translation or to seek areas of overlap or convergence, especially through shared notions, such as notions of what it might mean to be human. Uh, I think that's an appropriate task in the context of reflecting on public policy. Uh, but I also think that if we take the role of imagination seriously, then some insights may emerge through the particularity of a tradition of stories and concepts without explicit translation. Now, even the strongest critics of appeals to religious convictions uh, in public reasoning about uh, public policies uh, tend to grant religious convictions a, an important place in the background culture of the society. The background culture, as John Rawls states, it is, includes the non-public reasons, the many reasons of civil society, which uh, may shape how a new technology such as cloning is viewed or how extracorporeal embryos are viewed. But it may be very difficult to draw a hard and fast line between background culture uh, and on the one hand, and public political debate on the other, particularly regarding such new technologies. The background culture tends to spill over into the public debate about appropriate policies. And I think it is probably better then simply to welcome all arguments into the arena and to assess their worth in public. Now, this points to another reason. The first one had to do with imagination. Now, the second one has to do uh, with the importance of bringing religious views into the public arena so that they can be tested along with other views. Michael Perry uh, is one who has made this argument quite effectively, I think. Uh, he argues that it is a fact, he takes it as a fact based on opinion surveys and other data, that so many Americans are religious that it's inevitable that some legislators and some citizens will rely on religious arguments in making their political choices. Now, because of this 
And because of the role that religiously based moral arguments inevitably, again, his language, played uh, in the political process, it's important that such arguments, no less than secular moral arguments, be presented in public political debate so that they can be tested there. Now, he's not clear about how this testing might proceed, and he seems to suggest at one point that it occurs at least ideally by competing scripture and tradition-based religious arguments. But that's surely too limited uh, for uh, public policy. When religious convictions are brought into the public sphere, uh, they are subject to and should be subjected to close public scrutiny, just as any other reasons are. Uh, Some of them may be mutually contradictory, for example. And the fact that a position is religiously based gives it no special privilege uh, in public political debate. So just we shouldn't exclude a position from the debate because it's religious, so we shouldn't give it any special advantage just because it's religious. Now, Michael Sandel uh, argues for an expansive conception of public reason that moves more in the direction of a kind of moral, even religious engagement, uh, arguing that mutual respect among citizens means addressing our fellow citizens, not just talking at them or appealing to reasons that can't possibly engage them uh, in a deep way. Now, this model of religious moral engagement as a form of mutual respect is well worth considering, but it's important also to note that entails both inclusion and scrutiny. But how might we appropriately test religious convictions in the public arena? Well, let me take one modest example from NBAC's report on human embryonic stem cell research. Uh, There's a section in the report where we write the following. The abortion debate offers an illustration of the complex middle ground that might be found in ethically and politically contentious areas of public policy. Philosopher Ronald Dworkin maintains that despite their rhetoric, many who oppose abortion do not actually believe the fetus is a person with a right to life. This is revealed, he claims, through a consideration of the exceptions that they often permit to their proposed prohibitions on abortion. For example, some hold that abortion is morally permissible when a pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. Yet, as Dworkin comments, it would be contradictory to insist that a fetus has a right to live that is strong enough to justify prohibiting abortion when childbirth would ruin a mother's or a family's life, but that that right ceases to exist when the pregnancy is a result of a sexual crime of which the fetus is, of course, wholly innocent. We continue, the importance of reflecting on the meaning of such exceptions in the context of the research uses of embryos is that they suggest that even in an area of great moral controversy, it may be possible to identify some common ground. If it's possible to find common ground in the case of elective abortions, we might be able to identify when it would be permissible in the case of destroying embryos. Now, that's an example, and I'm not offering it uh, in, by any means as one that really uh, clinches the case. But what it suggests is one way one might proceed uh, to evaluate religious arguments in the context of a debate about public policy. But doing so really requires uh, communal deliberation, including an ethic of speaking and, and listening to one another's arguments uh, in the process of critically evaluating those arguments. Now, according to Michael Perry, uh, the fundamental concern about religion in public political debate is not that religious convictions and arguments are brought to bear, 
but rather how they're brought to bear. For example, they may be asserted dogmatically without leaving any room for critical assessment. But concerns about how fundamental convictions are brought to bear extend to secular convictions no less than to religious ones and to philosophical reasoning no less than to theological reasoning. This point is often neglected. For example, R.C. Lewontin uh, sharply criticized uh, in back uh, in a piece in the New York Review of Books for inviting religious discussants to the table because, as he said, theologians attempt to abolish hard ethical problems and seek to avoid painful tensions and internal contradictions. Well, clearly, both philosophers and theologians seek to avoid internal contradictions in order to have a defensible position. But many theologians, as well as many philosophers, recognize the hard ethical problems that these new technologies raise and the painful tensions that arise in addressing them. Yet, in Inbach's hearings on cloning and on stem cell research, as well as in other public deliberations and publications, the positions taken by the theologians and scholars of religious traditions as a group were probably no more dogmatic than the positions taken by philosophers and secular bioethicists as a group. Uh, dogmatism is not limited to any one approach. There is, uh, in my judgment, uh, an appropriate role for religious perspectives uh, in the process of formulating public policies, and I've given a couple of ways in which, beyond the ones that we present in our report, uh, these uh, convictions might function, simulating the imagination and providing a way for us to assess the deeper reasons that people may have for the choices and recommendations they make. But it's also important, I think, to limit their role uh, in the content and justification of those policies. So in the process of reaching a decision uh, or making a recommendation, as in Inbach's case, we should attend to the widest range of positions and reasons for those positions. Uh, and yet, in the final analysis, uh, such a group uh, or policymakers uh, need to be able to formulate a position, a substantive policy, uh, that in content uh, and also in justification uh, has an adequate secular uh, rationale, especially when the policies involve coercion as the recommendations about prohibiting cloning would. Now, let me suggest how this kind of framework might uh, operate. Uh, and in doing so, I want to examine appeals to humanity, uh, especially from religious perspectives in the debates about cloning and human embryonic stem cell research. Uh, so first, protection of the clone. Uh, as I suggested, it's important to make explicit uh, fundamental premises, religious or otherwise, that operate in moral arguments about public policy uh, regarding such practices of cloning. If a position presupposes a particular conception of the meaning of being human, then making it explicit would invite and allow a closer scrutiny by its defenders and its critics. Well, what is the nature, what is the role of appeals to humanity or to what it means to be human in the debate about human reproductive cloning? Despite what comment, some commentators have suggested, the debate about the morality of human cloning is not a debate about the moral status uh, of the children brought into the world through this process. According to one prominent political scientist uh, who should have known better and therefore shall remain nameless, 
religious communities would oppose human reproductive cloning because the clone would be soulless, would lack a soul. Uh, that statement and others similar to it uh, fail to recognize the distinction between diminishing humanity and violating humanity through infringing certain human rights. Even the strongest religiously based position, uh, for example, the Roman Catholic position, which actually would claim a natural law basis and not simply uh, a specifically religious foundation, clearly would hold that the clone is a full human being created in God's image, regardless of the process used, even though his or her human rights were violated in the process of reproduction. Which rights? Well, within the Roman Catholic context, one is the right to be conceived through sexual intercourse between a man and a woman united in marriage, which eliminates a number of reproductive technologies, cloning just being at the far end of the spectrum. By contrast, some other approaches, uh, including, for instance, uh, Inbach's approach, focused on the importance of not harming or subjecting to undue risk of harm uh, the child uh, to be. Uh, others also uh, worried about uh, embryo wastage. So for some, the very process of asexual reproduction would violate the humanity of the children so created and would thus dehumanize the agents who undertake asexual reproduction as well as the society that tolerates it. Uh, some critics, such as Leon Cass, not only condemn asexual reproduction, but as I've suggested, uh, several other forms of artificial reproduction as well, on the grounds that they do not represent human forms of procreation. By contrast, the late Joseph Fletcher argued that we are most human in reproduction when we make and use technologies. In an exercise of human reason that rises above other animals and represents distinctively human, rational activity. Well, those are fundamentally different conceptions of what constitutes distinctively human activity and reproduction. But despite such differences, and a wide overlapping consensus appeared in the practical conclusion that many reached after the 1997 announcement of Dolly's birth and that many still hold, uh, that it's unethical, at least at this time, to engage in somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning to create children. However significant such a consensus might be for public policy and for ethically acceptable public policy, it may not be a very deep one. Uh, indeed, it may not have been very deep among uh, the NBAC commissioners uh, who helped prepare the report uh, as subsequent discussions have demonstrated. We recommended a temporary legislative ban in private uh, as well as in public context on efforts to create a human being through reproductive cloning. And we rested that argument uh, to a great extent uh, on this particular claim. At this time, it's morally unacceptable for anyone to attempt to create a child using somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning because current scientific evidence indicates that this technique is not safe for use in humans at this time. And uh, I'll skip over the, the arguments we were appealing to uh, in the data related to the creation of Dolly. Uh, some critics charged that NBAC abdicated its responsibility as a bioethics commission because it based its recommendation largely on a scientific argument about safety rather than an ethical argument. I think that charge is misdirected. Uh, more accurately, 
what we did in the light of the available scientific evidence was to reach a moral conclusion based at least in part on the ethical obligation not to harm or impose serious risk of harm on potential children. And again, some would also add the embryo wastage, but the heart of our argument had to do with safety regarding the children so created. And safety is a fundamental ethical consideration. It's not merely a scientific one, though it obviously rests on the available scientific evidence. Any procedure that creates a substantial risk of harm to children is morally problematic. Now, we had no reason to believe that the safety problems would be insurmountable or that this ethical barrier would long endure, though it appears to have endured a lot longer than many suspected. And we thought it was also important to consider a variety of other ethical issues, including the psychosocial impact on the children so created, the impact on family life, etc. And we thought that these required thoughtful, careful, and imaginative reflection over time so that the society would be prepared to respond appropriately to the prospect of human cloning if and when the technique appeared to be safe. So we recommended a sunset clause, a ban of three to five years, sunset uh, provision, oversight by an appropriate body, and so on and so forth. Now, it's possible to argue, I think, that most, uh, if not all, of the religious traditions could join in a call for a temporary ban. Even the traditions that would favor legal regulation rather than legal prohibition of human reproductive cloning, for example, Orthodox and conservative Judaism, could agree with the Commission's concerns about safety for children so created and could support a temporary ban or, if a temporary ban seemed problematic, strong regulation that would, until the safety issues have been adequately addressed, amount to a ban. So. This would be a consensus, but at a very different level than at what it means to be human. At a very different level than whether human cloning violates the humanity of the child so created, dehumanizes the agents who undertake it, and eventually dehumanizes the society if we assume that it would become widespread. The limited nature of this consensus uh, may in part account for the failure to this point of legislative efforts to ban human cloning in the U.S. even for a temporary period. Uh, while such a consensus may still exist among religious and many secular traditions that scientists should not proceed at this time with efforts to create children through cloning, it has been very hard to use this consensus as a basis for crafting prohibitive legislation. Hardliners want a permanent ban, while softliners want a, a temporary ban and subsequent reassessment and careful regulation, uh, or careful regulation. So there's debate about the length of a ban, there's debate about the scope of a ban, uh, and it's not clear whether the House bill, uh, for example, would pass the Senate, particularly because uh, it covers uh, so-called therapeutic cloning as well as reproductive uh, cloning. But if a practice is deemed unethical, even for a certain period of time, from religious and secular perspectives, there are still moral questions about whether it should be legally prohibited. Other things being equal, it's easier within a liberal, pluralistic, democratic polity to justify not providing governmental funds for a morally controversial project than to justify uh, prohibiting such a project when the harms to others are not clear. And 
we felt on impact that we had to uh, work very carefully with the strong moral as well as legal presumption uh, in our society uh, in favor uh, of procreative liberty, which I'm sure John Robertson uh, will address. Uh, it is plausibly a presumption in our society, though not a, an absolute uh, barrier to certain kinds of actions. But it does set a burden of proof. And for many on in back, the burden of proof was met with the safety argument. Uh, perhaps for others, it would be met by other arguments. But what about moralism? What about moral repugnance? Could that in itself, since it was so widely expressed given the announcement of Dolly's birth, be a sufficient reason for a prohibition? Well, uh, Leon Cass, who will chair the new Council on Bioethics, the successor body to INBAC, uh, testified before INBAC and offered a version of what became his well-known piece, The Wisdom of Repugnance. Uh, and it's a, a good starting point for an examination of the role of such negative emotions as repugnance and revulsion. And according to Cass, repugnance is the emotional expression of deep wisdom beyond reason's power fully to articulate it. We can't give fully adequate arguments, he says, to the horror of, the, uh, of bestiality, incest, mutilation of a corpse, cannibalism, etc. Uh, and a failure to give those reasons doesn't uh, render someone's revulsion at these practices ethically suspect, he argues. Now, he goes on to put human cloning, or repugnance at human cloning, in the same category. We're repelled by it because we intuit and feel immediately without argument the violation of things that we rightfully hold dear. Repugnance revolts against the excesses of human willfulness, etc. It's cloning represents, and, and our revulsion expresses this, a major violation of our given nature uh, as engendered, as embodied, engendered, and engendering beings, and of the social relations built on uh, this natural ground. So there's clearly a strong view of what it means to be human at work in this. Now, his argument is that the burden of argument must fall entirely on those who would declare the widespread repugnances of mankind, including now cloning, as well as the other horrors he mentioned, to be mere timidity or superstition, and thus we should declare that cloning is unethical in itself and dangerous in its likely consequences, and we should do so through the criminal law. Now, is repugnance a sufficient reason for such a declaration? I think we should take repugnance uh, not at face value, but seriously. And in taking it seriously, we should seek to understand it and see whether the repugnance can be warranted in light of the fundamental values that are putatively at stake. Uh, second, we cannot take experiences of and appeals to repugnance as fully natural and universal. Uh, and some of Cass' examples, which I won't go into uh, now, uh, suggest the way in which there can be considerable uh, cultural variability. Uh, and because of that, it seems to me uh, that uh, Leon Cass's discussion of the motion of repugnance in relation to cloning perhaps is religious or quasi-religious in nature, even though he's presenting the argument in terms of an understanding of humanity that appears to be independent uh, of specifically religious foundations. Third, uh, this emotion of repugnance by itself without strong supporting reasons is not a sufficient basis for prohibitive policies or for withholding funds from some areas of research. In contrast to Cass's view about the moral burden of or the burden of moral argument regarding widespread repugnances, I would state the moral burden differently. 
if we're trying to formulate public policies in a liberal pluralistic society, the moral burden falls on those who are proposing the coercive policies. Repugnance alone will not carry the weight of the argument. Now, uh, in drawing this to a close, let me make a few comments about the moral considerability of the early extracorporeal embryo, where there was a lack of moral consensus. I've tried to suggest that there was, a, I think, a, a moral consensus wide but not very deep uh, regarding at least a temporary ban or a regulation that would amount to a temporary ban uh, on cloning humans. But I think in the area of human embryonic stem cell research, particularly considering the status of the early embryo, there is no consensus. And some have suggested that where we're looking at moral status and moral considerability, as in the case of the early embryo, uh, religious convictions are especially appropriate. Uh, Kent Grinewald has argued that. Well, it's certainly the case that much of the debate about human embryonic stem cell research has focused on the moral status or moral considerability of the early embryo uh, existing outside a woman's womb. As I mentioned earlier, uh, INBAC convened uh, on May the 7th, 1999, a hearing of, uh, on religious perspectives related to the early embryo and the implications of views about the early embryo for stem cell research. Uh, altogether, 11 scholars uh, from uh, Roman Catholic, Jewish, Eastern Orthodox, Islamic, and Protestant traditions presented testimony that day, and others made comments in the public comment period. The various statements, as well as others that have appeared, reveal significantly different perspectives on the ethical acceptability of research on unimplanted human embryos. Even when similarly opposed to abortion, different religious traditions may reach divergent moral conclusions about human embryonic stem cell research that involves the destruction of the early embryo. And those different conclusions uh, follow in part from different premises about the moral status of an early embryo existing outside a woman's womb. Now, Roman Catholicism uh, officially opposes human embryonic stem cell research because of its conviction that human life begins at the moment of conception at the location of that life, whether in a petri dish or a freezer or a woman's womb, has no bearing on moral considerability. Uh, some Roman Catholic moral theologians depart from that official position, but that is the official position. By contrast, a number of Jewish thinkers hold that the early embryo located in the petri dish or prior preserved does not have standing in Jewish law and that it's justifiable to go forward with human embryonic stem cell research. Protestants represent a range of views, a wide range of views, uh, as could be expected uh, since there are more than 200 denominations in the U.S. that can be identified as Protestant. Uh, some Muslim thinkers uh, also accept human embryonic stem cell research and so forth. This past year, uh, over the summer in particular, the position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, became very significant in a debate about federal funding for human embryonic stem cell research, uh, as the five senators affiliated with this tradition indicated their support for federal funding. And it was, this was a surprise to many because this church generally joins the Roman Catholic Church in strong opposition to abortion. In this case, it declared its neutrality on embryonic stem cell research, saying that this area merits cautious scrutiny in view of its potential benefits, as well as the concerns that need to be addressed and that demand strict moral and ethical guidelines. 
the five Mormon senators who supported federal funding did so in their judgment without compromising their pro-life stance. And that's because the Mormon tradition does not rest its opposition to abortion on a declaration about when human life begins. It views abortion rather as similar to, but not identical to homicide, in part because it has a two-stage view of creation. It holds that, and this is in relation to the embryo, uh, extracorporeal embryo, it holds that each person existed as a spirit child of God prior to receiving a physical body on earth, uh, and that the union of spirit and body marks the beginning of life on earth. In this context, stem cells, according to uh, one interpretation, are comparable to the dust of the earth, essential life but not human life. Now, this is obviously too brief, but it's enough to suggest that no consensus exists among religious traditions or secular moral traditions about the moral considerability of extracorporeal embryos. And this diversity sets a context for public policy uh, and an ethical response to possible uh, policies. Uh, one of our commissioners, uh, and this was written up in American Medical News, a pediatrician uh, with a, a strong commitments in the area of, a, of a protection of the embryo and the fetus, uh, ended up supporting Inback's views, uh, even though he was not completely convinced he was making the right decision, because he was uncomfortable uh, with the destruction of human embryos in the process of deriving stem cells. He said the decision was haunting him and that he couldn't sleep at night. But then he continued by saying, we live in a pluralistic society. I have to consider more views than my own. There are so many different views about the moral status of the fetus. Who's to say, or early embryo, who's to say who's right? He indicated that the turning point for him was this hearing I mentioned at Georgetown, where we listened to the different religious uh, traditions and their views on human embryonic stem cell research related to the status of the early embryo. He said, the disagreement among and within religious traditions made it quite clear to me that we must compromise on this issue as we have. So he was willing to go along with this and even willing to consider using stem cells for a loved one as long as this occurs, the research occurs, within a context of respect for the embryo and adequate public oversight. Let me just conclude by summarizing the point I've emphasized at least twice and have tried to illustrate. I think there is an appropriate public role for religious perspectives and religious voices in the process of formulating public policies. And I've tried to suggest beyond the reasons we mentioned in the report, the way in which they can help to stimulate public imagination uh, and why it's important to engage people uh, at deep levels uh, in terms of their fundamental views uh, so that we can test the foundations on which different views rest. And so the process needs to be very, very open as a matter of mutual respect and engagement of our fellow citizens. And yet at the point of formulating public policy, determining its content and justifying it, we have to be able to appeal to an adequate, a sufficient uh, secular uh, justification uh, in determining that content uh, and in trying to defend the positions that we deem appropriate. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Let me stop there and uh, get uh, Peter Singer's response.
Thank you very much, uh, Professor Childress, for a, a, a wonderful introduction to this conference. The respondent uh, for this session is Professor Peter Singer, the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton. Before coming to Princeton, Professor Singer served on the faculties of the University of Oxford, La Trobe University, and Monash University in Australia. Professor Singer was the founding president of the International Association of Bioethics and the founding co-editor of the journal Bioethics. Professor Singer's work includes the highly influential work Animal Liberation and books related to bioethics including Practical Ethics, Democracy and Disobedience, How Are We to Live? Ethics in an Age of Self-Interest, and Rethinking Life and Death, as well as a collection of his work entitled Writings on an Ethical Life. I welcome Professor Singer. Thank you very much, President Hillman, and thank you, Professor Childress, for your very clear and illuminating talk, which it's a pleasure to respond to. In fact, I think I have a large area of agreement with what Professor Childress was saying in uh, his talk, although I'm not totally sure how much because of the question of what the close public scrutiny of religious ideas to which uh, Jim Childress referred really amounts to. And I want to make a suggestion about that, which I hope will sharpen up the debate, and also give an example of this which will lead to questions about what it means to be human. So what is this close public scrutiny to which religious ideas should be subjected in the field of bioethics? You remember Professor Childress said that we should neither exclude nor privilege religious ideas. Well, um, he put up an overhead which uh, indicated a variety of things that, that Enbeck had referred to in uh, how religious ideas should be taken into account. And some of those I totally agree with. For example, we can say as the first way in which we might uh, scrutinize religious ideas, we might ask, are they good ideas in themselves? Are they good insights which may help us to address some of these issues? And indeed, um, they can be. Uh, as an example of something that um, we might regard as a, a good insight, um, let's, let's take the golden rule, something that many religious traditions put at the forefront of their ethical principles. But it's not limited to ethical traditions. You find versions of the golden rule, for example, in the Stoic philosophers who were not religious. You find it in the, the thoughts of Confucius, who was not religious. So um, it's an idea which is very widespread, and if it comes from a religious tradition, you can certainly welcome it as something that is, I think, quite basic to any ethical approach to any question. Secondly, we might ask, are these ideas or beliefs so important to members of the community that if we go against them, we'll cause a significant offence, we will cause people in the community distress, anger, outrage, and can we avoid that at relatively little cost to others? 
And again, I think NBAC's um, decisions and recommendations were influenced by that idea. For example, by the idea that um, in funding research um, involving uh, stem cells, we should try and avoid actually funding the research that destroys embryos, um, but rather uh, fund the research that uh, does not itself involve destruction, although perhaps it uses cells that come from embryos that have been destroyed, but not destroyed with federal funding. That's a kind of a compromise that people may or may not like, um, but you can see that it's an attempt to avoid causing uh, or minimizing the offense to the community. You clearly can't minimize it uh, altogether, and sometimes you certainly should just directly confront it because the attitude that um, you're confronting is actually one that is seriously wrong. For example, it would have been quite wrong to uh, waver or hesitate in desegregating, let's say, public eating places in the American South in the 50s because that was going to cause offence to a lot of white Americans who didn't want to eat their meal with an African-American sitting next to them. Yes, it does cause offence. Yes, that's something you have to get through in order to achieve a more just situation. So um, uh, that's, that's, a, but that's something that I would accept a certain amount of validity to. But the third test of, of scrutiny that I think we need to put religious ideas to is a more difficult one, and one that I'm not sure whether uh, Jim Childress was supporting, because his example uh, was one of internal consistency. When he cited, cited Ronald Walken's claim about abortion and about people who say that they think the fetus has a right to life like a human being but are prepared to accept abortion in, when the pregnancy is due to rape, um, that's an, an internal inconsistency. But I want to go a little further with the kind of scrutiny that religious ideas would need to pass. I think that unless we are to accept them for one of the first two reasons because they're good ideas in themselves, or because we can avoid giving unnecessary offence to large members of the community, then we should not give weight to religious ideas unless their foundations, the foundations of those ideas, stand up to the scrutiny of public reason. And that's the same scrutiny as any other claims need to stand up. For example, if someone were to come before NBAC or any other body in bioethics and say, they believe that cloning is acceptable because they were visited by a wise Martian who told them that cloning was acceptable, and we know that Martians are much wiser than Earthlings. Before we give that claim any weight, we would want evidence that there are Martians, that they have visited Earth, that they are wiser than Earthlings, and that indeed some wise Martian did say that cloning was acceptable. If we could get good evidence for all of those claims, then maybe we ought to give the claim some weight. Similarly, if people say that cloning is acceptable, or for that matter that it's not acceptable, because they tell you sometime a century or two ago an angel visited Earth and left behind some scriptures inscribed on golden plates, and those scriptures, when properly interpreted, lead us to believe that cloning is acceptable, or perhaps is not acceptable, depending how they're interpreted, we would want to have evidence of the existence of angels, of the visit of that particular angel to earth, of the fact that scriptures were left behind on golden plates, 
uh, and of the idea that this is the correct interpretation of them. And if we don't have acceptable evidence of any of those, of all of those claims, I should say, we should not give weight to the belief as a religious belief. And the same is true, I believe, of any religious claim. If someone claims that any scripture is one that is to be given authority to because it was divinely inspired, we need to have evidence that there is a divinity, that that divinity indeed inspires scriptures or inspired this particular scripture, and that that scripture has been properly interpreted. Now, in my view, such claims cannot be defended adequately against the standard of public reasoning because, in my view, there is no adequate defence of the existence of a divinity of the kind who can inspire scripture. That, this point, perhaps I'm demonstrating the truth of uh, Jim Childress's claim that dogmatism doesn't lie just on one side. But that's because I don't have very much time to go into it. I could, I could give you a lot of arguments if I were having rather more time. Anyway, let me, let me say that that's the standard that I believe ought to be maintained. Okay, let me give you briefly one example in the context of what it is, what it means to be human, of where we might look at religious views and consider whether there's something valid in them, but also question their foundations. And I want to look at not at the question of what it is to be human in the context of cloning or embryos or fetuses, but in a rather different context, and that is in the context of uh, what it is to be human in the sense of how different are human beings from non-human animals. Because I think that's an important aspect of what it is to be human, and I fear that if I don't mention it now, it's not going to get mentioned in this conference. I may be wrong, but that's my suspicion. Well, there is a religious view about how humans differ morally from animals. A Judeo-Christian religious view, I should say, is what I'm talking about here. There are other religious views that are interesting, but again, I don't have time to discuss them. The Judeo-Christian religious view is that humans and humans alone were made in the image of God. This gives them special status. It also holds that God gave them dominion over the animals. This gives them certain rights to do things to animals which they do not have to do, to do to other humans. And thirdly, although this is perhaps more specifically the Christian view rather than the Judeo-Christian view, that humans alone have an immortal soul, which animals lack. All of these things give humans then this much higher distinctive moral status over animals, which means that we can use animals in the context of bioethics, that in particular means, I guess, we can use them for research, though it also means in other areas we can use them for uh, eating or uh, entertaining or whatever else it might be. But focusing on, on research and, and looking at how this view works in the case of one particular scientist, let me mention a, a senior American scientist called Robert J. White, who, coming from a religious background, uh, opposes the use of embryos to produce stem cells opposes the destruction of completely non-sentient embryos. Nobody argues that an embryo at the stage we're talking about is a sentient being, that it has a nervous system or can feel pain, but who in his own work removes the heads of monkeys and seeks to keep them alive in vats of fluid that sustain the 
life functions and indeed allows them to recover consciousness to the point where one monkey I have read, and I think entirely justly, actually bit him. One monkey's head, I should say. Now, when challenged about the ethics of his research on animals, Dr. White has said, it's meaningless to include animals in ethics. It's meaningless to attempt to extend ethics to animals. I think that this is fundamentally a religious claim. I don't think that anyone who does not come from a religious point of view would claim that it is meaningless to include to extend ethics to sentient beings who can feel pain. And indeed, I'm pleased to say, of course, many people who are religious also do uh, extend ethics to, um, to animals. But uh, I think that's a, a, there's a distinctive religious basis for Dr. White's refusal to do so. So um, the, the question here is, what are we to make of the religious claims here? I don't think that their foundation is sound for the reasons that I've given. But, of course, we might say that there is some kind of truth about differences between human and animals that is expressed in a metaphorical way by saying that humans are made in the image of God and animals are not. But if we think about that, it would have to be something to do with the particular capacities that we have that make us godlike. And those capacities would have to be related to our intellect, which is, I'm prepared to say, superior to that of any non-human animal as far as we are aware. But that intellect is not something that is universally true of all members of the species Homo sapiens. And it's certainly not true of embryos. They lack it. So indeed may some more mature human beings for reasons of accident of birth or, uh, or um, some later tragic events. So uh, if we were to ask questions about the status of human beings independently of religious claims that all humans, because of their godlike uh, appearance or their um, nature or their dominion over animals, what, would we, what conclusion would we come to? I think we would come to conclusions which looked at beings as they are looked at their capacities and gave them moral weight accordingly. So that instead of having a sharp line that separates humans and says, to be human is to have a unique and higher moral status above any other living being, and all you need to be human is to be a member of the species Homo sapiens, I think we would develop an ethic where we say, the moral status you have depends on certain capacities. We can debate, and again, I don't have time to go into it, what those capacities and characteristics are. Maybe just sentience is enough. Maybe sentience is only the first step of a multi-tiered graduation and some higher intellectual qualities make a difference as well. But it would not be something that simply drew a moral circle around membership of the species. The defense of that, I think, does depend substantially on religious claims that cannot be supported before that altar of public scrutiny that I referred to before. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to invite uh, Professor Childress back to the stage. Thank Peter Singer for his response. 
and open the floor for questions. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, could everyone hear the question? Okay. Um, I'll just pick out two parts of it. One was uh, when I referred to uh, harm and safety, was I basically conflating those? And second, could there be a harm that might occur in the future uh, if a person uh, brought into being through the process of cloning were to look back and say, I'm, I'm sorry that I was brought into the world this way, but uh, much deeper than, than sorrow. Is that a fair characterization? Regarding the first, I was focusing uh, mainly on the physical issues surrounding safety, and that's when I referred to harm or undue risk of harm. That's what I was referring to. We did on the commission consider, uh, as part of an effort to develop a framework for further reflection, not that we could at that time and in 90 days uh, resolve those issues, but rather we could identify some of them for further consideration. We did think about psychosocial uh, problems as a result of, uh, of cloning. Uh, many of those are speculative, uh, first of all, uh, and uh, I think uh, it was interesting on the commission that given some of the concerns about individuality and identity that we hear about, uh, that there were uh, three commissioners uh, who were parents of identical twins or identical twins themselves, and that may have had some bearing on our receptivity. Harold is an identical twin. I'm the father of identical twins. Uh, so that may have had some role. But then in relation to your last point, I would just note that uh, I'm not sure that uh, we would want to approach technologies uh, simply in terms of whether if a child is brought into being this way, the child says, I wish I'd never been born. Any of you who've had teenage children know that they <laughs> say that frequently uh, and how wrong we were to bring them into the world and to treat them the way we have. Uh, I think it's, it's on the safety level, it's a lot easier to say that. However, your question also poses issue as, uh, as to how we determine that, uh, as, uh, you know, when we say that even animal studies are sufficient. So I guess I would want to say that on the reproductive technology side, I wouldn't want to say no to those merely on the grounds that there might be this further uh, objection later by the child. But what I would emphasize, and I don't know, Peter, you may know uh, the studies of the IVF uh, babies since uh, Louise Brown in the, in the late 70s. I'm not sure that we have evidence there that this is a, 
uh, is a, uh, a problem. Uh, furthermore, what I would emphasize is that the religious traditions that have addressed this are quite emphatic that there's no difference in ontological status. Humanity is not diminished by virtue even of being brought into the world through cloning. So that, that at least within you know, the context of uh, different communities, even the ones that strongly oppose uh, cloning, uh, as used the language I used in the presentation, the cloning violates the rights or the humanity but doesn't diminish it. So the ontological status would be considered the same, even though the particular child may obviously uh, feel it differently. Please. Well, Can you repeat the question? Yes, the, the question was, uh, I made the, the claim uh, in a parenthetical comment. Sometimes parenthetical comments get you more trouble than names. <laughs> uh, I made the claim in a parenthetical comment that the Roman Catholic position uh, on some of these matters would be offered as a natural law argument, which would not be considered within that framework specifically religious. That is, say, uh, the natural law argument is being made that this is, this is based on human nature uh, that we all share and that is accessible in principle to all of us. So that's the claim that's being made. Obviously, uh, the argument for natural law, uh, the way it's presented, the way it's interpreted, uh, and with the Roman Catholic Church holding the view that it is the final uh, arbiter of the natural law contest, that clearly it's it's mixed up with uh, a religious position here. So I was just at that point referring parenthetically to the claim that uh, as presented in Roman Catholicism, we offered as something that could, could be established independently. But obviously, it tends to be intertwined with, certainly with theological views about God as creator, who created us with a certain nature and so forth. Well, um, um, religion, I would say, has to do with a couple of different things. Uh, one is some sense of, of sacred, transcendent, divine, ultimate, and many different terms get used there. But, but something like that. Uh, and uh, then a variety of practices and attitudes get associated with that, all constituting something we might call religion. Uh, it gets a lot harder, and, and I, I believe that you've made some observations, uh, as I did today, about Leon Cass's position on this, right? Uh, I use the language of relig- religious or quasi-religious, which may be similar to the language that you used also, and it gets hard to draw the line at some places. Uh, I quite concede that. And that would even be true for some philosophical positions that are, are, cl- are more clearly philosophical in nature but depend on certain forms of intuition and so forth. It may be hard to distinguish some of those uh, from a religious position. I don't know. Peter, do you want to comment on that? No, I think I'm happy to leave you with, okay, with that you. one. It's always, it's always <laughs> you get these before, questions right? like, will you define this basic term? You know, tell me what ethics is. I get that question quite often. <laughs> um, I think you did a good job of defining it. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, the question was how we dealt with issues of, of, of the a child brought into the world through cloning uh, in connecting with paternity, maternity, and uh, case of divorce, who, who has a, a, a control, uh, and uh, how we do it on the family tree. Is that fair to your question? Uh, we recognized some of those issues that were obviously being raised in the, in the popular press, and we recognized that uh, just as 
other reproductive technologies, uh, cloning will raise some important questions about how we define uh, uh, families and how we understand relationships within families, which are often not merely scientific in nature, but obviously concerned with rights and responsibilities. And we recognize that this would be an important matter to be addressed further, again, in line with what has happened in other reproductive technologies, with a fundamental question being, what is the relationship between uh, the clone, I'll use that language, uh, and the person from whom the material was taken. That in itself, uh, technically speaking, delayed identical twin is probably the, the best way to think about it. But the kind of question you're raising really gets more at the rights and sort of gets at both. Uh, gets in part at the issue of rights and responsibilities, and that it seems to me is something that we would just have to work out, just as we have in, in uh, other cases in reproductive technology, uh, one a, a couple of years ago in California where a trial court uh, declared uh, a three-year-old girl legally parentless, even though there had been a contracting couple, a sperm donor, donor an egg donor, and a surrogate uh, uh, to carry the baby. So five people contributed to this baby, but the court said legally parentless. Well, the appellate opinion uh, overturned that uh, and made the act of will on the part of the contracting couple the determinative th uh, feature for, for parenthood. But that, again, was an issue of determining rights and responsibilities. And it, it seems to me there would be different ways to argue the case, uh, but certainly the, the will or act of uh, taking the steps to bring about uh, the birth of a child would be one important part of that. But we didn't resolve that. Uh, and I wish I could just say uh, it's because of the 90-day problem, but it's a much more complicated issue than limited time. There was a question. Yes, yes. Yep. And then a gentleman. Uh, let me, let me, uh, did everyone hear that one? Okay. Uh, I, I, I may get this one wrong. I'm just a simply straightforward way as I can. Uh, coming from a discussion in, in uh, Germany uh, where a, a group was set up to look into issues related to human embryonic stem cell research and other uh, issues, I take it too, uh, that the danger is in such a setting you end up with the kind of liberal default position. And can you really, in, when you're uh, interested in processes like this, uh, deal with the morality uh, of the act or practice, or do you just end up uh, dealing with what you can get consensus on? Is, is that fair to what you said? Is right. Right.
Um, I think in a way, I mean, you're right, but that's, that's a, in a kind, obviously you set up a committee in a different kind of society, you're probably going to get a different result. Um, so I think it's not just this, that, it's the, the context in which it occurs. And I would emphasize a couple of things. I think that um, in, at least in our context, I would want to draw a distinction between the judgment about the morality of an act or practice uh, and a moral judgment about an act or practice and a moral judgment about a law or policy related to that act or practice. And it's that second level that's also very important. Uh, and uh, that, I, I, I take it, is part of what we were concerned with on the commission and other bodies are as well. And that's going to in part depend on what one takes to be uh, the evolving uh, moral framework in the society as reflected in uh, laws and in the, in the Constitution and so forth. And those are important parts of doing what I might call a social ethics that may be a little different from uh, just coming up, uh, whether one is working theologically or philosophically, uh, with an argument about the morality of the act or practice. But this is one, uh, as in football, lateral off to Peter here for a moment. Would you? Do you want to... Yeah, well, I, thanks. Um, I guess I would challenge the assumption that by setting up a commission, you necessarily have to find consensus in that commission and therefore end up with a liberal view. I mean, there's nothing in the setting up of a commission that prevents that commission saying we have no consensus but we will recommend by a majority of nine to three or seven to five or whatever it might be, we think that this is the right view. And I think actually often sometimes commissions are, are too afraid to do that. They, they search hard for consensus. But in doing so, I'm thinking, say, of, of the commission that, uh, that Mary Warnock chaired in Britain on uh, in vitro fertilization and embryo experimentation. I think in doing so, um, the argument can get rather wishy-washy, um, and, and it would help the public debate if you had a majority prepared to say, this is what we think is right, and we argue for it in the following way, and a minority saying, this is what we think is right, and we argue it from this way. And then, you know, ultimately the politicians are going to have to make up their mind, but it might help the public to get a clearer and sharper sense of what the issues are. Yes, here. Could you all hear that? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think you had a strong voice there. Um, so you're asking, well, you actually said if we reach a state of genetic perfection, will we still require religion? I'd like to take the word genetic out of that. I don't think it's going to come through genetics, although um, you know, maybe Lee Silva has other views, though I think even by your calculations, Lee, it was going to take another thousand years or more. Um, so let's, let's just assume that we reach a higher, uh, or what I would regard as a, a, a higher level of education, awareness, um, understanding of the nature of the universe. Uh, and then you can ask the question, would we still have religion in that? My view would be that we would not have religion really in the sense that uh, Jim defined it earlier, that is, in the belief in 
uh, a transcendent being or a divine being as that is standardly conceived by religions today. But we might still have room for what you might refer to as religious aspirations or feelings, um, and indeed they might well be inspired by listening to Mozart, uh, or perhaps even Stevie, Stevie Wonder, though I'm more doubtful about that. Um, <laughs> And they might be inspired perhaps by reading Stephen Hawking, if you can understand him. I have to confess that I didn't actually finish that book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you can understand him and you get the sense of the universe and, and how you, you might have a, a sense of awe before that, and that might be something that you would characterize as, as religious, if you like, but I think it would be very different from how we standardly understand religion today. And for that, I don't think there would be room anymore. Oh, well, this is a bit like the question that I said, that you always get these questions, how do you define something, which is very hard to do briefly. But let me just say this. I think that there are concepts of public of, of reasoning that are shared by everyone, whether they're religious or not. I'm not referring to a specifically secular mode of reasoning that is only used by people who are not religious. It's, that's why I use the example of the Martians. Right? Um, you know, anyone who is told by someone that they have been visited by a Martian is going to require certain evidence before believing that claim. Uh, and the standards of evidence, I think, that a religious person or an atheist would require would be fairly similar. And that will be true for a whole range of claims that people make. Um, these standards of reasoning and, and evidence are more refined in scientific research, I think, than in general public life where we, you know, we have ideas of, of the nature of the trial that we have to do, the objectivity of the findings. We run uh, random controlled trials for, to test drugs and so on to eliminate uh, placebo effects or, or bias from the observer. So we have developed standards of reasoning more or less sophisticated in different areas. And those are the standards that I want to apply. So it's not that I'm making claims that um, I've got a standard which is different from the standard religious people use and they should use my standard rather than their standard. Uh, I'm just saying we have common standards which we use for a whole range of claims. We should not exempt religious beliefs. We should not say just because a belief is about the existence of a god rather than about the existence of a Martian or about the effectiveness of a proposed new drug, um, we should not change the standards we have because of the nature of that claim and accept it more readily than we would have accepted those other claims. Last question. Okay. I think you, your, your claim is that 
what I said, just said about public reasoning does not apply to ethics, and we don't have such clear standards to provide reasons for the fundamental premises of our ethical views, utilitarianism or Kantianism or whatever. You're right about that. Um, but I think that there's a difference between what we require of reasoning when someone makes a claim about the nature of the world, what I would call a descriptive claim, and says, this is what the world is like. And I think a claim about the existence of God, that there is a being, that this being has inspired this particular book of scripture or whatever else it might be, is a claim about what the world is like, a descriptive claim. I don't think of ethics like that. I think of ethics as making prescriptive claims, that is, as making claims about what we ought to do. And I agree that the standards of reasoning for making those claims are highly contested, and it's difficult to show how one of those fundamental premises is, is better than another. So in that sense, you could say, well, if someone were to give up the descriptive element of a religious viewpoint and simply take it as a prescription for how we ought to live, um, then I think what I said would not, would not apply. We would then look at that as a prescription. We would look at something else as a prescription. And I think that there is some grounds. You know, I don't totally give up on reason even in the area of, of prescriptions. That is, I don't give up on reason in ethics. But I do think it's different, and I think it's, if you like, softer. Um, so it's harder to show that one view is more rationally defensible than another. But in some cases, it's not impossible. And for example, I would make the argument that I made about uh, the division, distinction that we make between human beings and non-human animals, that you can show that there is something irrational about the views that uh, Robert J. White takes um, if you try and defend them purely as eth on an ethical basis, as evaluations or prescriptions, without making claims about God having given us dominion over the animals or something of that sort. Um. That's a description of how we reason regarding the nature of the world. That's true. I hope all of you will join me in thanking uh, Dr. Singer and Dr. Childress. Thank you. Thank you. Good session.